everybody. Welcome to the March 16th, 2018 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on students in Colorado and nationwide walking out of schools this week in protest. Denver students ended their demonstrations at the Capitol building, calling for state legislators to respond in the wake of the Parkland High School shooting in Florida last month. Patty Cahoon from Westward, we have seen a lot of protests in this town. Uh, while we're not protests uh, happy, we certainly get our fair, more than our fair share. Do you see any action coming from this protest happening in Colorado? Well, as we were discussing before the show started, the legislature seems more interested in confiscating my brass knuckle phone case than dealing with the gun issue. But they should listen to those students. Uh, it was brought back visions of the 60s and 70s for a lot of us, except that these protests were much more well-behaved, I thought really sincere and heartfelt, and it was not just an opportunity to ditch school, but for 17 minutes, remember the people who were killed at Parkland, and then continue on and demand accountability from the adults in the room. David Kobel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, did you see anything uh, from the protests in Colorado that you think will make an effect? Well, there's one group that is very quietly celebrating this whole thing, although they haven't been in the news, and that is plaintiffs' lawyers who specialize in suing school districts. Because these district these walkouts were often organized by teachers, and certainly with the approval uh, and, and sometimes direct support of the schools, then that raises the question for the next issue that somebody wants to protest, like, say, the, the, the uh, pro-life, anti-abortion, or, or any other cause that's maybe not officially approved by the government, uh, like these were, will they have the same things? Will you be able to walk out of class with no disciplinary consequences? And if the school discriminates on that based on the ideology of the, the point, then they're setting themselves up for quite a, a hefty civil rights lawsuit that they will very likely lose. Congress acted yesterday. The House of Representatives passed the Stop School Violence Act, which uh, 410 votes in four, very bipartisan, uh, supported by, among other things, the, uh, the Sandy Hook Promise Group that was formed after the murders there. Uh, it provides uh, grants to schools for tech upgrades and things, metal detectors and you know, all kinds of other things. Uh, more training for for school staff and for law enforcement about detecting potential school shooters in advance and increasing uh, the availability ability to report uh, potential dangers in advance in various forms, including from cell phones and things like that. Now, obviously, that does no good when you report to people like the Broward County Sheriff's Office or the FBI and they get told over and over and over again they don't do anything. That happened again in Florida about another, uh, a jihadi student uh, who attacked people with knives. Um, for, the, for those students who were walking out in favor of, of anti-gun laws, welcome to the debate, but what they are, some of them are supporting is things that are well established as failures in places like California, Massachusetts, and France that make things more dangerous. Eric Soderman, Eric Soderman, political analyst. Uh, it's an election year, so uh, a movement like this can make an effect, but we're also realistically approaching the summer vacation where I think it'd be pretty easy, I think, understandable if the movement tends to fade. Do you think it'll make an effect on this election year? Sure, I think it will have an effect on this election year. I think this movement, uh, and particularly the Parkland shooting in Florida, 
it in a way that other shootings didn't, even Columbine or Sandy Hook, it has mobilized a new constituency. It used to be the mom constituency. Now you have a kid constituency. This country is rich with collective action and protest movements. Uh, when they have an impact, it's usually not a fast impact. It's a, it's a gradual impact over time. To David's point, and there were a few tangents in David's discussion, but uh, to David's core point of welcome to debate, that's accurate, and there's certainly a pushback uh, from people who feel differently. It, none of these issues are as simple as, uh, as a sign on a protest banner or, or a protest placard uh, would have you believe. But more power to these kids for exercising their free speech rights, for taking an issue seriously. Uh, change is often, not always, but often driven in this country by youth movements. And we've seen that over time, and um, I wish them well. Krista Kafer makes her debut here in Colorado Inside Out, a Denver Post columnist, also an adjunct professor at uh, both uh, University of Denver and Regis University. So being around students, uh, let me get your take. Do you think there's going to be a long-term effect from this movement? I hate to say this, but no. And I, you know, the first time I went to a protest was when I was a kid, and it feels good, and you're sincere, and you're with people who believe what you believe. But do they really have an impact? I mean, back in the 60s, they certainly did, and I think we are all better as a nation because of it. But think about it. It's... Um, is, is one person who, a single person who is contemplating doing something evil, would they have been swayed by the marches, by the protests? No. Uh, people who should have done their job better, be it uh, the, the, the school guardian or, or the sheriff's office or the folks that are supposed to input things into the database, will they do their job better because of those protests? Probably not. Who knows? Uh, legislators, if you're for the Second Amendment, you're for due process, do you suddenly change your mind? Probably not. I just don't see how anyone changes their mind. In fact, I think if anything, there's a risk of alienating people who are law-abiding gun owners because they're not the problem. 30, 30 newsroom staffers at the Denver Post will be let go in the coming weeks following an announcement by editor Leanne Colachapo on Wednesday. The Post is owned by Digital First Media and controlled by Alden Global Capital, which is wrapped up in a lawsuit claiming the hedge fund, quote, invested millions in a failing pharmacy chain, along with other risky business ventures. Patty, we have seen reports, sadly, from uh, the Denver Post before losing uh, staffers. But this one seemed to get, mark a very visceral reaction with our community. I saw people on Twitter from both sides of the political spectrum lamenting this problem. Uh, so the statistics of uh, when the Rocky was still around, there was, I think, 480 journalists working a daily beat, and this would possibly bring it down to, uh, uh, I think, around 60. What was different about this reaction, and do you think there might be some different outcomes? Well, th what was different this time is people really realized we could become a no-daily newspaper town. Um, ten years ago, we still had the Rocky Mountain News, which was great. We had the Denver Post, and the Denver Post newsroom was ten times what it is today. It was 300. I mean, sorry, it was three times what it is today. So now we're a little under 100, and it's being cut again by a third. There's simply no way you can do the basic job of a newspaper, a paper of record, doing, covering the news of the day with that size staff. It's especially egregious because Alden Global has the money. They are taking money. They are wringing money out of the Denver Post. Love it or hate it, you don't, the, the Denver Post, you don't want the money going to Alden Global. They don't need it. It's this hedge fund that is a cynical and as horrible as you can imagine in what they're doing with the Denver Post. They won't sell it to people who've approached them. They just are 
trying to basically dehydrate it until it's gone. And I drove by on the way here and you saw the Denver Post building back in the day when we had the JOA, that beautiful building on the corner of Civic Center when we had two robust newspapers, albeit in a JOA, we thought we would have a lot of information. Now it's just a trickle. And it's not a failing newspaper. I think we've, we've passed that era where newspapers are failing. The newspaper is actually doing well profitably. It's the matter of the management, as you mentioned. David, there's a lot of great independent, smaller news operations in Colorado. Complete Colorado is doing a great job. Colorado Independent. But each of those is working with a, a handful of staff, if that. This is the, the, the largest staff that we have for uh, and a daily operation. Does something need? Does something bigger need to be done? Is there a bigger impact that needs to be uh, brought up? Yeah, as Patty said, it, it's it's catastrophic for the functioning of our democracy because it depends on information and all those people, you know, down the information food chain who comment on a blog or whatever. It all goes up to the reporter who originally reported the news, and and did the the footwork and the shoe leather and all that. Now, there have been layoffs at the Post and, and the demise of the Rocky, which were caused by, A, people being, trying to be freeloaders and all just like read things online and not pay for a subscription, and the Post properly put up a paywall for that, and other things. Craigslist killed the, the classified ads. Facebook has actually soaked up most of the money uh, that comes from the monetization of, of online uh, articles. But this goes beyond that because, as Patty said, the Post is a profitable enterprise. And what, so they, they didn't have to cut these people. They were, they were making money at their current staffing levels. What, what this despicable hedge fund is doing is really like a slumlord. If you say, we'll, we'll never repair the building, we'll actually go in and break things in it sometimes. And we can continue extracting money, like from legacy print subscribers like me, which I probably always will be as long as the post exists, until, and rather than sell the building so it could be built into something useful, we'll just let it continue to deteriorate until the whole thing falls apart. Uh, we, we need a good quality daily newspaper in Denver. We don't have, we won't have that, haven't had that for a while. Uh, it's going to make it worse, and um, I hope someone comes in. I think there's room for somebody to start up a new newspaper uh, of quality in Denver and, and invest some money for a while, and they'll uh, far outdo what the Post is able to do with its, its now decimated staff. Eric, I guess I wasn't shocked. Uh, my time on the show is maybe a little more cynical than I should be to see people who are attacking the Post for, well, this political stance. But the, the, the newspaper is going to be there for all political stances. You know, and the, the kind of issues that matter to you, including the potholes in front of your street, are not going to get addressed if City Hall is not being uh, kept to task. That's going to only happen with a daily newspaper. Is it going to have to get worse before it gets better as a community for us? Are we going to have to even suffer more before there is... A, something more positive for us to look at as another option. It's hard to imagine how it gets worse other than ultimately uh, closing up. I guess I would start by saying there are 30 individuals here, many of them with families, whatever, who are going to be most directly affected, 30 talented individuals, and uh, you know you need to think about them. Now, because they're talented, many of them will land well, but it is still a major uh, disruption uh, and uh, certainly an undeserved one in their lives. I think if you look in the dictionary under the phrase death spiral, you, you see the masthead of the Denver Post. It is one of these vicious downward cycles where you cut staff, 
so therefore you have much less content being produced, the paper gets thinner, sparser, etc. So readers no longer subscribe, readers no longer subscribe, so you don't have the subscription numbers, and therefore print advertisers don't no longer use it or pay a lower advertising rate, and it just viciously cycles down. And I think that is what is happening to the Post. Patty and David are absolutely right about the hedge fund, uh, the Alden hedge fund. I mean, just acting, you know, giving uh, the worst possible notion to Wall Street greed or whatever it is. And I'm not one that usually wants to pile on there, but these guys earn every uh, every invective that can be. Uh, thrown their way. I read Mike Litwin's column in the Colorado Independent uh, a, a few hours ago before coming over here, and I, Litwin was talking about Phil Anschutz and begging Phil Anschutz to take it. And Anschutz, as Lord knows, been interested in it before, but this group just won't sell. And Litwin's point, from a very, very liberal perspective, was I, Mike Litwin, probably disagree with Phil Anschutz 99 times out of 100. But the one thing he believes in and the one thing I believe in is quality journalism, and that one out of 100 is enough for me under the circumstance. So hopefully, whether it's the Denver Post or some new entity, somebody will step up here and, and revive uh, and be the savior of, of journalism in Denver. Krista, you're a uh, uh, star in multimedia things, whether it's just writing for the Denver Post or also uh, on the radio. There's a lot of people that really depend on a daily newspaper that it's not terribly obvious in the community that it, it affects more people than just folks thinking that it's not on their driveway anymore. They don't uh, maybe pr uh, subscribe to the paywall. What do you think? Now, print journalists are kind of like the... Uh the plants in the animal kingdom. They're the, the, the source of, from which everything else depends. Um, whether we're talking TV, radio, um, other enterprises that, that like blogs, people that comment on the news. These are the investigative journalists that are out there doing the work. We need the Denver Post. I grew up watching my folks read the Denver Post. I now write for the Denver Post. And these journalists are doing that work. Who's going to do that work? Now, I'm not saying there aren't some other great publications in this town, particularly Westward, looking at the city beat, but we need the Denver Post. And we really need, as you said, Eric, Phil Anschutz to step in. You think about what uh, Jeff Bezos did with the Washington Post, and it was floundering, has turned that paper into a, a great enterprise that is not just a local paper, but also a national paper. I think an entrepreneur could come here by the Denver Post and turn it into a great regional paper, into the Rocky Mountain, the, 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 print, you know, the, the paper of record for the Rocky Mountain region. There's a lot of great folks over at the Post. We need to preserve that institution. The Denver City Council announced in a written letter this week that it will not pursue an independent investigation to sexual harassment claims against Mayor Michael Hancock. However, Councilmember Rafael Espinoza has called the mayor out on his actions and has asked a further analysis to take place. David, with the council coming out with this announcement, are we seeing at least the end of this particular news cycle if nothing else comes out? Yes, I think we're, we're at the end. It's not just the beginning of the end. It's, it's the end of the end. The city council has the power to uh, create an investigation. They chose not to. Speaking of people you agree with only one time out of 100, Kevin Flynn and I, the former Rocky Mountain News guy, panelist here, uh, now Denver City Councilman, I don't agree with him on a lot of policy issues, but I have great respect for his partly because of his journalistic experience, ability to get in, find out how things really work, and, and see that the system is operating properly. And Kevin Flynn, having seen things 
the public hasn't. You know, confidential attorney-client investigations, things like that. He said there is no basis for going forward here. This is something that happened six years ago. It was improper. The mayor apologized. The uh, sheriff's deputy got $75,000 settlement. She doesn't hasn't urged anything be reopened. Uh, it, it's We're now six years out, and I think time's up. Eric, what do you think? As a political analyst, I've got to believe you've been asked uh, a variety of times um, on issues like this in the lifespan. Is this coming to a close, or as long as there's nothing else that comes out? Um, did, is that the effect of the city council's announcement this week? You buried the lead in your question there, Dominic, as long as there's nothing else that comes out. It, it's been drip, drip, dripping here for several weeks or a month. I think the drips, as David pointed out, may, may that, that faucet may turn off if there's nothing else that comes out. The history of these uh, kinds of incidents around the country is usually... Uh, these incidents don't stand alone, and that is got to be Hancock's big worry. This has been, to change metaphors from drip, drip to, to, to fire, this has been a brush fire, and it's a brush fire that has damaged Michael Hancock, but that he can probably withstand. But one more spark, one more addition to this fire, and the brush fire turns into a firestorm. And that's what uh, the question is, is whether there's anything else out there. Secondly, lastly, I do take some exception, and I know we're in a world that is governed by lawyers, and I'm sure city council is operating with plenty of legal advice, but this notion of using past settlements that took place six years ago with Wayne McDonald or with this particular detective to preclude current transparency, I think sits wrong with a whole lot of people. And if there are people on city council right now, as we know there are, who are looking to run for mayor, they have just handcuffed themselves with this issue. Krista, what do you think? Is this uh, over for the mayor? Again, as Eric put it, uh, as long as there's no more drips or, I guess, in, in, let's go with uh, Eric's metaphor, any more fires? No more fires, no more accusations. I think he weathers it, at least until the election. Uh, he runs for election. This issue's going to come up again. It goes to character. His opponents could certainly use it and, and should use it. Um, but I do think it sets a new standard. I think we have a new era. The Me Too era says, hey, you, you can't do this. You cannot uh, email these kinds or, or text these kinds of things to the people that you work with. This kind of behavior is off limits. Save it for the bar. Patty, wrap it up for us. What do you think? Oh, I think the drips are coming. Um, <laughs> it may not go into a flood or a firestorm. We can have all our natural disasters. But there are still some unanswered questions that I think people have the right to know. And if we don't find out soon, it will come up during the election. We have $275,000 at least that were made in settlements, one to a person who arguably should never have had the job, another one to a woman who did make complaints. There also are some gaps in timing. Wayne McDonald, who has been blamed in a lot of this, had left the security detail and moved to excise and licenses two months before the mayor says he heard about complaints. So the question is, why was he moved out of that security thing? I think that's what an investigation could tell us. It would tell us why he got paid $200,000 when he allegedly had sexually harassed someone and shouldn't have been on the job anyway. So there are some questions that will be answered, if not in the next month or two, in the year when he was running for re-election. Let's get a quick take on this last one. Democratic gubernatorial candidate Mike Johnson officially made the primary ballot this week, and Jared Polis submitted 33,000 petition signatures in his own bid for the ballot. On the GOP side, Walker Stapleton, who has already turned in signatures, is considering going to the state convention. 
Eric, uh, you can take your pick on either party. Uh, what's the bigger news? What's the bigger impact? Real quick, I mean, we're now three, three and a half months away from a primary. This thing is, we're, we're in prime time here. Walker Stapleton, I have to believe this calculation is based on thinking he could deliver a knockout blow at the state assembly and save himself a primary or at least a meaningful primary. On the Democratic side, it is really coming down to three horses. I mean, we started with five. Donna Lynn is really not being heard from a lot, and she needs to do something to jumpstart it. But in whatever order, this is looking like a three-horse race. Jared Polis, Kerry Kennedy, Mike Johnston. Krista, what do you think? We've seen different momentum surges on the, on the Democratic side. We know the kind of uh, uh, pocketbook that uh, a wallet that uh, Jared Polis brings to the game. We know that Kerry Kennedy did well in the caucuses, and Mike Johnson's first in the ballot, or at least uh, first from the petitions. Who has the momentum? Well, they're all qualified, which is great. I think if we learned anything from the last election, if you have a ton of people going into a race, is say over 10 or 15, I'm thinking about the presidential race, you don't necessarily come out with the best person at the, at the, at the other end. We've, in this case, we've got a small number of people, all with good credentials, uh, uh, good experience in government, all eminently qualified. I think it comes down to issues. My preference would be uh, Mike Johnston because he's probably the most moderate of the three, but they're all three very qualified people. I think what happens on the Republican side, I would love to see that also winnowed down. I think uh, Walker Stapleton is a terrific person, great credentials, great ideas. And then to have go into a race where we have ideas versus personal invective, that would be awesome. See, you haven't been on the CIO long enough to have you that very cynical. So it's understandable <laughs> that you're, you're thinking you can have this uh, kumbaya moment. But uh, you can be forgiven that. Patty, what do you think? Uh, what's the biggest news coming out of the gubernatorial updates? Well, definitely Carrie Kennedy's showing in the caucus was impressive. Now, she's not petitioning her way on, but you've got to think she will get there from what she's doing that we knew Mike Johnston was out of the gate early and so that he was the first to get on the ballot isn't a surprise. That Jared was able to get all the signatures he needs isn't a surprise. I think one of the things on the other side that's surprising is still that Cynthia Kaufman, we are hearing so little from and about. So if anyone could maybe give Walker Stapleton a little competition, it would be her. David, does Stapleton smell blood in the water? Can he deliver the knockout punch as Eric describes? Sure, and it's entirely due to, to Cynthia Kaufman's lackadaisical attitude towards the campaign. I think a lot of people think that she would be the strongest Republican in the general election, but if you're going to get to the general election or you're going to run well in the general election, you need to build a campaign structure. And she still continues to think that she can run for governor the same way she ran for attorney general because they're both statewide races. Well, you know, Jared Polis won a statewide race for uh, the the uh, school uh school board uh, and he put a lot of money into it more than any human in the history of Colorado in the past in that race and I'll guarantee you he is running his governor's race at a level that is far above that you can't run for a for governor the way you run for AG and uh, since she does not acknowledge that fact I think her chance of, of making the ballot continues to decline daily if I remember correctly, I think that state board race, it was something like a million bucks that Jared Polis had spent and his opponent spent like 10000 It was just And it was a close race. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, to play off what Eric was talking about with transparency, with the lawyers sh gagging people, talk about gagging. The, at, the, at the Colorado legislature this week, the aide who has told AIDS interns, they are not allowed to talk to reporters about workplace issues, including sex harassment. Big mistake. Let's hope we can have an open, honest discussion. David. 
South Africa is going down the same road of self-destruction that Zimbabwe did. Gun bans so you can't protect yourself against the government and its mobs, and now murders of white farmers and government seizures of their land. That's how to take a productive, thriving agricultural system and, and create mass starvation in the country. And people are, are fleeing that country as refugees. That's one of the consequences when you have excessive gun control. Eric. My wife and I were so fortunate to score some uh, tickets to Hamilton, which I know is uh, uh, was no easy feat. Uh, seeing this play about the formation of our country, the courage, the risk, the brilliance that it took on the part of these people to create what we have, we're making a mess of it these days. And that's not just a critique of the current White House, although they're at epicenter of that critique, but it's a critique of our whole political system and our whole civic dialogue. Uh, we are making a mess of our inheritance. Finally, somebody saying something nice about Hamilton. Finally, good. <laughs> Krista. Shame on the hedge fund for starving yeah. the Denver Post to death. We need this paper. Those journalists are doing a great job. It's time for them to hand that over to someone like Bill Anschutz. Time to say something nice about somebody. Patty? Well, let me also continue what Krista said. Unfortunately, Alden's greed is not limited to Denver. They are slashing budgets and staffs at newsrooms across the country. So love journalists, hate journalists, you will miss them when they're gone. So I just want to say something nice to all the displaced journalists still hoping to find a spot. Here, here. David. In the Colorado State Senate, Republican uh, Senator Gardner and Democratic Senator Fenberg, who are publishing uh, pushing successfully a bill to allow uh, telepsychology so that uh, to have an interstate compact so that say a if we agree with Kansas a psychologist in Kansas could provide treatment to someone in Colorado uh, via the internet. Eric. The word genius is overused these days but uh, when you're talking about I'm back to Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda it applies. Uh, that lives up to all the hype and goes so far beyond it. It is a uh, amazing bit of art, artistry and theater. Krista. My kudos go to Senator Marco Rubio, who just introduced legislation to allow states to go to permanent daylight savings time. We need to either be on permanent daylight savings time or permanent standard time, but the switching back and forth, it's going to kill me. <laughs> I second that 100%. I usually make fun of those folks, but I'm one of these this year. That is all the time we have for this edition of Colorado Inside Out. Be sure to take CIO wherever you go. We're on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, you name it, and we're there. You can check us out. You can check out our podcast on iTunes and Google Play. And, of course, we are finishing our spring membership drive this weekend. So if you enjoy this program, let us know and please consider supporting it by becoming a member. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic DiZutti. Good night and happy St. Patrick's Day a day in advance.